This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk podcast. My name is Reese Armstrong, the editor for European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer and your host for today's episode. Today I'm joined by Cathal Thriel, the exec- executive chairman of clinical research organisation Open Orphan. A little bit of info on the company, um, Open Orphan is a world leader of testing of vaccines and antivirals through the use of human challenge clinical trials. First of all, just uh, welcome to the podcast, Cathal, really pleased to have you on. Recent pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. Um, I suppose just to start, um, it's no secret that Open Orphan has been especially busy during the um, the COVID-19 pandemic. You were one of the first to start, or the first to start the, um, a human challenge study model for the coronavirus. Can you just tell me a little bit more about getting invo- involved in that? Yeah, uh, look, it's a terrible thing to say. Look, this pandemic has been awful for the world and for everything, but some companies have done a little better than others. And because Open Orphans Origins was a subsidiary we bought, HVIVO, all they ever did was test vaccines and antivirals. We completed an acquisition in January of last year, uh, and the world didn't really want to know about it then. But as you know, three or four months later, it got kind of interesting to be testing vaccines and antivirals. Uh, very quickly in March, it became clear coronavirus is a problem. It wasn't known as COVID at that stage. And we had done, funny enough, the team had done a lot of work three years earlier, and they reached out to large uh, pharma companies saying the seasonal coronavirus, of which the six of them, and you and me, one in every five has a OC43 in this, which is totally harmless and immune. Uh, that's one of the six coronaviruses. Our friend COVID-19 is unfortunately the seventh one. And we'd done a lot of work three years earlier saying we should do a challenge study, i.e. test a vaccine for seasonal coronavirus. We were laughed. The pharma company said, well, hang on, OC43. Coronaviruses are then seen as pretty uninteresting, harmless little things. Other than two of them, SARS and MARS were pretty nasty, but they were confined to Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and confined very much to Saudi Arabia, but they felt there was no market. But we did quite a bit of work. So 7th of March, we announced the world, well, well folks, uh, we're now going to launch the world's first coronavirus challenge study model, i.e. we would test a coronavirus vaccine. And very quickly that's uh, morphed into testing a COVID-19 vaccines and very quickly thereafter, late June, early July, the British government's vaccine task force commissioned us to work closely with them in partnership to be able to test the vaccines and run the world's first uh, COVID-19 human challenge. It took quite a while. Uh, so that trial formally kicked off earlier this year. Perfect. Thank you. I, I know you can't really talk about the specifics of, um, of the trial, but how do you, I mean, it sounds like you were quite prepared to, with your previous work with coronavirus to, to, to launch the model. How do you go about sort of um, just getting the right patient cohort and just getting it set up? Yeah, look, I, I, recruiting for any challenge studies, exact same cohorts that come into phase one and every country in the world uh, has multiple phase one uh, normal studies underway as healthy volunteers testing a drug in a clinical environment in a hospital usually. So 
uh, challenge studies are similar but different. We have our own hospital facility, our own quarantine rooms, and basically how we to get the volunteers the same way. However, asking a volunteer to line up for a flu study, which at most will give you a sniffy nose, or an RSV might give you a sore head. Uh, as we know, it's uh, asking to deliberately take COVID was different. However, an interesting part in June or 7th of March last year, on the first day we announced we did, we got 50,000 people around the world who volunteered, more, 110,000 around the world volunteered, and we had 50,000 people in the UK who qualified because we have to have, they have to be a UK registered UK GP. Wow. So believe it or not, getting the volunteers was not the problem. A lot, they were younger uh, and younger people felt, uh, look, they really want. So yeah, it was amazing the amount of people who were interested in participating. It probably helped that I said I was going to be potentially volunteer number one, so to say, but I was outside the age group. But no, it, it hasn't been a particular problem. Right, thank you. Um, I, I just, um, just for our listeners, first of all, could you just explain the importance of, of doing a challenge study model and uh, what's exactly just involved? Yeah, I think the challenge study model now becomes hugely important from this year forward. Last year, there was a rush around the world to get the vaccines and get them into the community and see do the work. And that was go very fast and furious around the world. You saw the Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson. Whereas now the challenge study now is really brilliant for when you have a lot of people vaccinated. To run, imagine trying to run a challenge study in North America now or lots of Europe where the disease is almost uh, somewhat under control. It would be very hard to get 46,000 uh, people who may catch COVID in community over a six or nine months period. So now our challenge model is only coming into its own where you actually the large pharma companies need, to, there's going to be a booster uh, for the next variations. And they need to some way to say, well, does this booster work or does this booster not work? It's very hard to say, let's wait till this winter, till the next coronavirus season wears its head. We know it's seasonal, it's peak coronavirus or COVID is in November, December, January. We know it's coming back. If you've been vaccinated, you're fine. So how it works is basically, we bring 20 volunteers into our clinic uh, and we can test any variations of it, of the new boosters, of the new vaccine, does it work? And that's as simple as that. Right. Wow. That's that's incredible. Um, where just on, just on the challenge study, where where are you now up to? I know you've had a few patients who have been confirmed who went through the first phase. Is that correct? Yeah. Look, we we can't say too much about it because we don't blind the study, but we said we'd have at this stage. I think the guess mark we'd have. 25 or 30 or so pass through. Uh, it's well underway. Well, we can say at some stage in the next week or two, the partnership that's uh, HVIVA, which is part of Bone Orphan, the Vaccine Task Force, and Imperial College is hopefully going to publish some of the early data from the first 10, maybe 15 volunteers. I think a lot of the big pharma around the world are anxiously waiting to see that data because we all know and we've seen lots what happens to a patient after being infected. Nobody in the world all on ourselves has seen what happens the two days before you get infected and really important the day of infection and the five days after. So that's the difference. So that data we would hope to publish it within the next week or 10 days. And that would be, I would imagine, either very late May or early June was where we would see it post. That'll be quite exciting data to publish. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, um, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, just for our listeners, we are recording this on the 25th of May, um, but you can probably check out that news once, a lot, once it lands, uh, either from Open Orphan or from ourselves at uh, EPM Magazine. Um, Cathal, I just want to go back to something you were saying earlier about how Open Orphan has, you know, studied the 
the coronaviruses, the, the six and now seven you've seen for some years and wanted to want to do the um, the study mo- model for, for them, but it wasn't responded to very well because of the market, I, I'd say. Do you think there's a bit of an, an overall issue with, obviously there's a supply and demand thing for new for new therapies, but I mean, pre- COVID has been such a big thing. Do you think we need to preempt this more? And do you think potentially pharmaceutical companies need to put away some of their concerns about return on investment in the market itself? Um, or different incentives, perhaps? It's, it's a tough question to possibly overall. I think Reese was happened very clearly is that look, the world evolved the last 30 years. The belief was, look, bear in mind, uh, the Spanish flu was over 100 years ago. Uh, and the really interesting one, the, the Russian, uh, there was a Russian flu, is believed to be in 1878 or 1879, I guess it was, with uh, samples come back. That looks like that was the first coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. It had been always blamed as influenza. But it's believed that was OC43, that one-fifth of the population. This is OC43, is totally an absolutely harmless. At most, you get a runny nose. But when that OC43 appeared in 1880s, it was lethal. A bit mm-hmm. the current one, I think, killed a lot more people. Um, but what has happened, really, complacency set in the last 30, 40 years. They've been thinking of the pandemic. It never arrived. And then when it comes to vaccines and antivirals, like it became a, a lower-margin business. Big pharma went after that. It's a free market to went after the oncology yeah. drugs, the big expensive ones. Bear in mind, you and I, we take our annual flu vaccine. It's basically $15, $20 that we pay to the practitioner, maybe more, maybe less. The vaccine company probably gets $3 per vaccine uh, for the flu. It migrated to India, China. And so, unfortunately, uh, a lot of production capacity was gone. I don't think it'll ever happen again. There's been more money spent in this last year on vaccines, antivirals, and period the whole history of mankind. Yeah. Going forward, I don't think we've anything to worry about. The governments around the world now realize, wow, the last pandemic was 100 years ago. Um, we are in the middle of one. Luckily for us, this is still, despite what the papers and we all feel, this is nowhere near as, bear in mind, the Spanish flu uh, that came in 1918 killed basically one in 10 people. Mm. It was pretty contagious, pretty lethal. Um, so we're so lucky. This one is it's, it's still a terrible, I think I'm very optimistic. I think look, going forward, there's going to be a, a huge amount of money spent on vaccine production facilities antiviral and the big ones they're all looking at now people always worry about antimicrobial what happens if the killer bacteria comes well guess what the governments are gearing up they're not going to be caught second time around uh that's it's interesting you say that because i've just done a piece on antimicrobial resistance actually um and you hear different things about preparedness by the government and um, certainly they've been looking into amr for, since um Lord O'Neill's report in 2014, um, UK government. But I mean, there's still, there are still concerns in regard to COVID-19, the, um, the trickle-down effect that um, the World Health Organization says isn't particularly working for lower-income countries. You know, the, um, the idea of vaccine hoarding because of pre-purchase agreements. There still clearly needs to be a bit of work done to to, be, to make sure there's an equitable distribution of vaccines. Do you, do you agree? I, I completely. But again... I... Unfortunately, I'm a born optimistic person. I think like my in-laws are my, my wife's born in England, grew up in Austria, but her parents were Southern India and they moved to Europe. Every Christmas we go back to India. So I have a very strong feeling of what's happened in India. But what's going to happen, unfortunately, at the moment, uh, in a pandemic, it's uh, me first, Western yeah, yeah. world. Europe will get vaccinated, North America. And look how fast it's happened. Like 
America went from behind the pack, where this week you're hitting 40%. Europe went from nowhere. Uh, the Irish government announced last week with 45% of the population vaccinated. So I think what's going to happen is first world will look after themselves this summer. But to realize it's a globalized world, you can't contain a pandemic if you can't look after our friends in the developing world. So I think later this year, you'll have literally plane loads and truck loads of the vaccines shipped to Africa, the Indian subcontinent, everywhere else. And it's going to, that will fix itself. But then back to your antimicrobial and future pandemics, I think governments around the world realize how connected the world is. So there's no good looking after the first world we are connected. People fly all around the world. Um, it was quite funny. I came in through Heathrow Airport yesterday morning. It was quite funny. All the India was felt really bad. All the people coming off in our India came in at the same time, and they were being escorted in one queue, and everybody else escorted in another queue. Yeah. So because the, they were coming from what seems a red list country. Course, yeah. That doesn't work beyond this work around for the next couple of months. So I think no. I think that the egalitarian of the or leveling up around the world vaccines will be shared antimicrobials will be shared what probably happened was the who a bit like the un it's got to get this functional small amount of countries kind of got more interest in it and a large amount of countries lost interest so i i, I think the current administration in north america the previous administration like it or lump them or hate them or whatever else they decided they want nothing to do with who at least the current administration realizes if either time it couldn't work by say well look yeah the who needs reform this needs money mm-hmm. and what money ref- reform will come so yeah no i'd be quite optimistic that late this year early next year you'll see vaccine availability all around the world because otherwise you can't open up the world to trade again and governments want to trade yeah no of course it's it's a global world as, as we say but um do you think any changes need to be made going forward just so we don't get into the position that we are now where, you know, the UK, for instance, has bought 400% of the COVID-19 supply? Do you think potentially maybe sort of their better agreement deals beforehand for pandemic crisis and, and stuff like that? Yeah, again, look what the UK government did and quite a few governments around the world. Oh, yeah. Bear when they placed those orders um, last June, July, August, September. Most people, scientists were betting mRNA will never work. They would say, look, that's never worked. Uh, most of our scientists here said, oh, a lot of them said, mRNA, that, that'll never work. Uh, the adenovirus is the way to go. And it turns out the adenovirus is the one that has less effective than mRNA. So what the governments did, they basically had to just buy up put bets on all of them Mm -hmm. they've come good so i think again it's very easy for the uk government it's very easy for north america as soon as they see this inflection point they get towards this winter and they realize they know it's coming back the coronaviruses are seasonal they're november december january i think there won't be too much sharing until they get into christmas again but beyond christmas the flood gets the vaccines and that'll allow as well bear in mind look we've seen some what countries that i see last week there were some countries there's no good shipping a lot of vaccines to uh, african countries at the moment if they need cold chain they need to prepare um so give them time to prepare uh to take vaccines as well mm-hmm. and see which ones work so no th- i think that that buying four or five x that you need was just bets on and it turns out Look, the wonderful thing about this pandemic, all the vaccines virtually worked that got into phase three. Yeah. Some of them knocked out early, but that before they've got phase three. Yeah, we were incredibly lucky just to see the, the number number of approvals come through so so quick, you know, considering the development times of vaccines. Um quite quite remarkable really. And I, I know right now we're 
in the UK at least, we're at a point of a uh, we can sort of let our guard down down a little bit. Um, Precisely. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it is remarkable. Um, I, I know you've just sort of announced the um, Challenge Virus Manufacturing contract to study more variants. Um, how important is it sort of going forward just to to be on top of emerging variants? Would you like? As a company, when we first started seeing, say, the, the Kent variant or the South African variant or now the Indian variant, variant, how do you react as a company? Are you are you worried or do you see it as another challenge to overcome? No, look, the history of HVO, we're very good at doing two things, doing challenge studies, i.e. testing healthy volunteers in a confined environment see does a vaccine or an antiviral work. The history of the company also is one of the few companies in Europe that can successfully grow a virus. So we take a, a cell line from one of the new variants get with full patient consent and grow that up to full GMP standards. That means if we produce two liters of the virus like this, enough to do a couple of thousand people, every droplet will be identical to the first to the last. So you can run it in the trial. That's quite tricky to perfect that. So that's the company's good at. The reason we're doing that is that uh, it takes time. So we that's Welcome Trust is paying for that to make it available to any country. You don't need too many variants. Uh, you need the original, freely circulating one that most of the world had last summer. That's mm-hmm. what we have. That's our challenge. And we kind of need one of the new variants. So then you could actually do that to try a challenge as well. You could test people on one or the other uh, as a challenge agent. I don't think there's going to be need for multiple variants because it is a coronavirus. The mutations in the spike, the protein itself doesn't change. So it's only, call it 30% of the virus changes. So our belief is if we one of the freely circulating one and one of the more modern variations, that's probably enough. But we can, it's a trial and error. It took us four months to grow the first batch. This batch will probably grow it in four weeks to full GMP standard. Right. Well, and just I, I know just uh, get back, getting back onto onto the company company, and um, you've just launched your disease and disease in motion platform as well. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, we've we've kind of guided the market. We, we acquired Open Orphan, acquired two companies, and we're good at fixing them. Uh, we we did the same some years ago. Another company called Amrit. We acquired a German and Swiss company, and Amrit now did $200 million in revenue last year. So this is, do it again. We set up Open Orphan. We acquired two loss-making companies. One was Venn, small CRO-based, mainly out of Paris and the Benelux country. Never made a profit in its 10 years of existence. We acquired HVivo, never made a profit 25 years of existence. Wow. <laughs> put them together, and guess what? We put them together in January of last year, and Q4, we got to the market. We were highly profitable. Not that hard if we fire a few CEOs, a few COOs. There's just too many overheads to them. And uh, so now we have a wonderful company uh, that's focused around the core employees. Basically, the core employees run it. My view is that uh, my job as CEO and executive chairman is to make the coffee, open the doors, and make people get together and drive the deals. So, yeah, we've put them together. It was just it, there was no rocket science put them together. But then within those companies, we're specializing in one thing, running challenge studies and doing some pharma consulting. They have a bunch of assets. Uh, and within HVO, it raised 114 million pounds sterling from a large investor called Need Woodford and IP Group. Half of that money was wasted. It was literally poured down the drain. And, uh, but there was about 40, 50, 60 million in really good product ideas. His idea was to create a biotech company within 
a services company can't do that. That's like mixing oil and water, yeah. services and products. So we're just spinning those products off into a new co. We've guided the market because neither company ever made profits. Uh, we, we, we can't pay a dividend. You can't hand shares out to it. So we went through the court process called uh, to create distributable reserves. We did that. And the last hurdle was last Friday. Uh, we got court permission. We got shareholder approval a month earlier. So at some stage, weeks, probably not months, uh, we will spin off our pharma assets into a wonderful biotech company open off and shareholders will get a share for share in that and we'll raise some fresh equity and hopefully uh, as one would say we're off to the races and see what we can do with that but we'll run them side by side as two independent strong companies with coming out of the one company mm-hmm. and what, what will be the focus with, with, that, with that biotech in terms of their will it still be Chance to challenge studies, but I just no. It be actually will. It be the focus will be somewhat infectious diseases, vaccines, right. and antivirals. So the open orphan will focus on testing and doing clinical trials, and the biotech will focus on bringing products through infectious diseases, anything to do with antimicrobial, but mainly vaccines uh, and things that the synergy we will be basically it'll be anything in an infectious disease, but also with using a lot of the knowledge we have about 35 phd people within open orphan all billable employees we build them out but that's a huge resource they're lifers and influenza lifers nor as v so it'll be around that space products we've one initial product uh, it's public it's a immune suppressor modulator for influenza uh, the companies has been sitting after them so that will go in so that's we'll have a um a therapeutic for people who've got severe influenza there'll be we're looking at an mrna vaccine platform It'll be a quite a unique model in that we will make them phase one ready or phase two ready or phase three ready and then try and monetize to big pharma. Mm-hmm. We'll be almost like a, a one-stop uh, shop for big pharma looking for infectious disease assets that are ready either for phase two or ready for phase three. We will not bring them the whole way through. And a challenge study will probably be a key part of many of them because that's our core IP. And that will either go into Open Orphan or if Open Orphan can't do it, it'll go to whoever can do it yeah well, i was going to ask actually just in terms of the development times with new therapies and obviously the regulatory uh, steps as well do you think having open orphan as that partner with the biotech will help speed up any potential gain it to market times yeah i think look we're a regulatory approval company uh we run clinical trials so the insights are pretty useful again we have got to run them independently so um, the spin-off, the biotech spin-off will become a customer and will pay for services from Open Orphan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, yes, yeah, some of the insights and knowledge where clinical trials failed before, it's, but we're very clear, we do not want to compete. Open Orphan will not be competing with our customers. Uh, the spin-off will be a standalone company. Brilliant, thank you. It sounds uh, really interesting. I'll hope to keep track of that uh, uh, this year and in the future. I just want to um, finish with um, something on Open Orphan's COVID-19 nasal vaccine costs. It, it's, it's a world, well, you're trying to develop a world's first nasal vaccine. Could you just tell us a little bit about the, the intricacies of, um, compared to, say, the in, in injection and, and just how difficult it is to, to do it by, uh, by nasal? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting product, only slight minor advantage. We're only testing it's owned by Codigenics, who's New York-based. Uh, they brought it to us because it had to be the nasal vaccines, basically a spray. 
and it's a, a live COVID-19 virus you're spraying, but it's attenuated, so it, it doesn't replicate, it doesn't cause any injuries. So it's not ours. We're, we're basically testing it. Um, we started the phase one. It's quite an exciting product because, as you said, it's needle-free. That avoids that. It's, cold, it's not cold chain. And one little spray could do whole community so it's uh, it's the future of vaccines i think very very quickly most even the covid vaccines will move from needle most people including myself known as like needle so yeah that's an interesting part again it, it's one of our many customers we have at the moment and that phase one started earlier this year and all i can say is that uh, let's watch that space to see where it goes yeah is the um is the technology there right right now for that to be put onto onto mass scale if you're seeing all the all of the potential future of COVID-19 vaccines might move to nasal? Yeah, I, I think if you think of uh, most of our kids at school, they hate the flu uh, jab. So most, uh, a lot of the uh, young school children who get a flu, it's actually a nasal spray. So there's no reason if uh, influenza works in a nasal spray, why would COVID not work in a nasal spray? So it's a, it's a matter of trying to get the delivery mechanism, but yeah, it, it's, it's quite exciting.